All right, everybody, welcome back to today's episode. So I'm here with Dr. Eric Helms and Dr. Eric Trexler. How are you guys doing? You go first, Trexler. Uh, I, I'm doing extremely well. I'm happy to be here. I'm thankful for the invitation. And I think we might need to maybe hammer out some naming guidelines on the front end here. So yeah. I'll go by Trex. I think that'll be uh, I think that'd be a fair way to do it. And then Helms, can we call you Helms today? I'm totally good with that because I, I, what I don't want to do, Trex, is get give one of us the, the like the naming rights to Eric because that would seem kind of it seem unfair, you know, that one of us would get to use our first name. So, and I also don't want to force Abel to call us both Doctor Blank last name. I feel like we we've got a level of rapport that that's not necessary. So I think that's a good suggestion. Yeah, and, and to the best of my knowledge, I'm still not allowed to write prescriptions. So just just Trex would be fine rather than Doctor Trex. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the Dr. Trexler and Dr. Helms was my plan because I, I thought of the just last name thing, but it kind of makes me feel like a PE teacher, like speaking to the students, like <laughs> Helms, Trexler, like, I don't know. I think it's good because it kind of brings us down to the level that we deserve, <laughs> you know. That's about right. Yeah, I was in the military, so it feels right for me. So All right. All right. Uh, so a Trex and Helms, that will be it. So, um, yeah, so. First of all, guys, thank you so much for doing this. It means a lot. And I'm actually really excited for this because I think if I don't fuck this up too badly, this could be one of my more informative podcast episodes. So I would like to chat with you guys about refeeds. And um, so basically what I would like you guys to do in this episode is basically destroy me. <laughs> so um, what I would like to do is basically play the skeptic on the sideline here. So I kind of would call myself a refeed or diet break skeptic. Uh, so I don't use refeeds and diet breaks in my own practice. I don't use it with myself. I don't use it with most of my clients. So it would be awesome if you guys could point out what evidence I'm ignoring or where I'm going wrong. And I think that could be very insightful to the listeners as well. So, um, so yeah, let's, let's, try to have a go at that and um, maybe let's start out with your kind of personal histories with this. So Helms, uh, you've been lifting for what, 15, 16 years at this point? Yeah, I'm up to 16 years now. So my lifting can uh, can get its driver's permit. So it's at a, at a dangerous time, but I, I feel pretty, pretty, pretty comfortable with, with the, the responsibility of it. Okay, cool. So uh, then we will start with you. So you've been lifting for about 16 years. Uh, in that timeline, around when did you start using refeeds with your own dieting? Was it um, relatively early on? And uh, what were you doing before? So before you started out with any kind of nonlinear dieting, what was your strategy? Yeah, so 2007. That's not true. Sorry, I did a... Uh, an early extended like cut to like try out getting lean um, in 2005. So I've been lifting for about a year and a half. Um, and I just did a linear diet and I lost about 20 pounds. Um, and this was back when I was a whole lot less uh, obsessive compulsive. Um, and then I got into bodybuilding and that gave me the, uh, the, the beautiful outcome of being more OCD. Um, so I wasn't tracking my body weight super consistently, which probably was to my benefit as I would find out later. Um, and this was a cut to maybe get down into the low teens, most likely, uh, cause I had, uh, gone on like a year and a half long perma bulk prior to that. Um, and that was my first experience. I didn't use any diet breaks or refeeds or any nonlinear dieting strategies. Um, 
Then in 07, I did my first contest prep. Um, and this was informed by uh, Lane Norton's article and some other stuff that I was just kind of self-educating myself in the mid-2000s on. Um, so for a good, I think this was a 20-ish week prep. It was from January to May, and I did two shows in May. And I would say for the first half of it, I wasn't doing refeeds, but I would have a meal out uh, on, on the weekends once. And I wasn't doing that for any type of... Um, proposed benefit of refeeds or diet doing it um and then i started cleaning those up uh and making them more more quantitative and making them a little bit more like a day at maintenance i think actually i'm not even sure i used uh purposeful refeeds during during my 07 prep but they were they were few and far between um and i think towards the end um, I had a, a pretty big plateau and I just was tr struggling to get into the kind of shape I needed. And this was the first little glimmer I noticed between my two shows, I ate more food than I should have, uh, and because of the proximity between shows and then had to get back on a diet, um, and noticed that I seemed to at least visually break that plateau and I started to get quad separation. I didn't, et cetera. Um, then 09 uh, was my, I, I was prepped by, by Lane and Berto at different parts, and there was different iterations of, of refeeds. They were relatively uh, modest, um, and I had a plateau for months, around 190 pounds, and I wasn't in the kind of shape I wanted to be until my fifth or fourth show uh, of the year. So from dieting from January to August. I made relatively quick progress until I plateaued around 190, starting my diet around 210. Um, and each time I did one of my shows, I'd have a celebratory meal, and I'd make a little bit of progress and then stall again. At least that was what it seemed like to me. Um, so that informed some kind of like, hey, you notice I, I, I seem to make progress, at least on the scale and visually. Uh, I'm not like, you know, stepping into a dex every time or anything like that. Um, when I have these post-show celebrations. And um, I thought that was interesting. But what I wanted to do was try it in the off-season. So in the off-season after 2009, 2010, uh, I ran many cuts, repeated at different points, because uh, I, I didn't compete again until 2011. Um, and I noticed that when I ran many cuts with um, like a two-day kind of refeed or, or one-and-a-half-day, like I basically took the weekends at maintenance with higher carbs, that my fat loss or my scale weight change, I should say, uh, was more linear uh, in, in, in those four weeks. Uh, and then that led to 2011, uh, where I thought, you know what, let me just do from the start uh, and have uh, a couple of refeeds per week, one of them being larger and getting to like maybe slightly above maintenance and having me mostly carbohydrate. And that was the first prep where I had um, linear scale weight change that was predictable, and I didn't have these long plateaus. Um, and that was also the first prep where I didn't run myself into the ground responding to the plateaus by then adding cardio or cutting more calories, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that was my, my personal experience uh, with it. And, you know, then, then, you know, there was another eight years before I competed again. So I don't know if we want to jump into that, but I, I carried that strategy through and I had um, predictable weight loss and uh, body composition change in 2019 as well. Um, and it's certainly the experience of when I have uh, days out of the deficit at roughly maintenance or maybe somewhere between maintenance and a deficit 
uh, or slightly over maybe, but not intentionally, um, is that the preps are, are better in terms of uh, energy levels and uh, visual outcomes. And I'm, I'm less prone to make unnecessary cuts to my, to my nutrition. Um, and I find that it's a little more, uh, it's a little less stressful. So just the, uh, the hunger and the energy levels are a little more consistent, uh, at least to a, the point where, you know, eventually you get to the, the place of where everything sucks. But uh, up to that point, it's, it's not as bad. That's my personal experience. Cool. Yeah. Um, so there will be a couple of things I will want to follow up on. So I will try to not forget the things you said, but, uh, first I will go to tracks. So, uh, yeah, tracks, could you kind of outline the, the same thing, the same way as, as Helms did. So like for how long have you been lifting and, and dieting and those kinds of things? And when did you start implementing, if you started implementing refeeds or diet breaks? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to disappoint you a great deal here. Um, so, I mean, I've also been lifting for a very long time. I think I started when I was 12, uh, pretty consistently. So like I've been pretty, pretty into lifting consistently for like 16 or 17 years as well. Uh, I just got a, a really early start. Um, now I was a competitive wrestler, so I guess you could say, you know, we, we would have a weekly competition cycle. You train, you know, Monday through Friday, you cut weight and then Saturday and Sunday, you, after you weigh in, you eat a bunch of food. It, it's kind of like a naturally built in 48 hour refeeding window, but it was never done intentionally. And I was, you know, I was a kid, so I, I don't really take those observations too, uh, too seriously. Now, one of the reasons I might disappoint you is because I actually personally don't enjoy doing refeeds. I don't do refeeds for me, but I do sometimes use them for clients, uh, based on some contextual factors that I'm sure we're going to get into. My interest in refeeds, rather than starting in the trenches, actually began academically. So one of the first projects I worked on as a graduate student was a review paper about metabolic adaptation and just all the things that happen when someone who lifts consistently and maybe is also, you know, maybe is considered an athlete, they play a team sport of some type, but when people who do strenuous exercise lose weight, what are the variety of changes that occur during that process? And of, of course, by that time, I was a competitive bodybuilder. So I was viewing it mostly from the perspective of a bodybuilder. So when a bodybuilder is trying to get really, really shredded, what are some of the physiological ramifications of that? And what might we be able to do to attenuate that? And, you know, going into it, I never had any kind of, um, I never deluded myself into thinking that just by shifting some calories around, we are going to overcome one of the strongest biological forces in nature, which is uh, resisting starvation. Uh, so so <laughs> that's not a good starting point. It's just saying, like, I wonder if I just ate more on Fridays if I was just going to be immune to starvation. So that's not what we're getting at when we talk about the kind of academic approach to refeeding. But the thing that jumped out to me was that, you know, reductions in leptin do seem to be... Uh, quite pronounced. Uh, and they, they certainly do seem to be a driver of, of some of the endocrine effects associated with uh, these metabolic changes over the course of extreme weight loss, especially someone gets like really, really lean. And so the question is, okay, well, what actually influences leptin? One thing is fat loss. And if we're on a fat loss diet, we probably don't want to remove that from the equation. That is the goal. Uh, another thing is, uh, you know, 
really large caloric deficits and specifically uh, continuous carbohydrate restriction. And, and so that's where refeeds kind of enter as an interesting thing where you say, huh, I wonder if we might be able to shift some things around and maybe manage leptin levels over the course of a week. So that's one side of it. And then, of course, another side of it is uh, glycogen depletion and how, you know, for many, many, many days in a row, if you're on a pretty restricted carbohydrate approach, you know, there might be some key muscle groups or some key workouts where you could use a boost with a little bit of extra carbohydrate, a little bit of intentional glycogen replenishment. So maybe that's a different aspect of where this would come into play during a weight loss uh, diet for an athlete or a bodybuilder. And then, of course, there's the practical considerations of a refeed and just kind of loosening up the, the diet, increasing macro targets a little bit and allowing some foods to come into play that on lower carb days simply couldn't find their way into the mix. So for me, I looked at it from a, mostly from an academic perspective and, and kind of trying to see what would be some potential benefits of m manipulating the energy deficit and carbohydrate intake throughout the week. You know, so, so for me, it was more academic and less based on like, hey, I've been doing these refeeds consistently and I love it and everyone else should too. Right. And um, Trex, you said something in there, which I want to pick up on, and that is that you don't like doing refeeds for yourself. Uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, like, why is that? Yeah, I think a lot of people are kind of surprised to hear that from me just because of uh, things I've said about refeeds in the past, because I, I do think there are defensible instances where they can be quite helpful. So I, I think a lot of people assume that naturally that means I use them myself. Uh, I have, and they've been fine, and I, I use them with some clients based on contextual factors and whether I, I think it might be an effective uh, intervention for them. But, you know, for me personally, I really like, uh, this is something I've talked about on a lot of different podcasts. For me personally, when I'm the one dieting, I really like simplicity. And I really like, uh, I, I have a tendency to really stress over the details in a lot of different contexts. And I like to take a pretty laid back approach and basically say, here's my diet. It works for me. I'm going to keep rolling with it. And when things slow down too much, I'm going to make a change. And so like one of the things like, of course, I talk about, you know, keeping track of your macros because those are the things we, we really tend to uh, manipulate over the course of a diet. But like my last competition uh, preparation that I did, I didn't track any macros other than protein and I didn't use a single refeed. Uh, I just wanted it to be simple. So I set my diet when the diet wasn't working as well and the rate of weight loss was no longer satisfactory, I removed some carbs or fat in a very qualitative sense. And I knew based on, you know, generally looking at my diet that I at least had my bases covered with my macros. But I just don't like to stress over, you know, the little changes. I just like to get in my groove with my diet and not sweat over the numbers. Because like I said, I'm a consistent overthinker. Um, actually, you know, Helms kind of mentioned like, you know, being a little bit OCD. So like as a child, I had Tourette syndrome and Tourette syndrome and obsessive compulsive disorder are so overlapping. And a lot of, a lot of kids that they don't even bother distinguishing with the, the diagnosis. It, it, it's, it's like quite a Venn diagram. So I still have some of those obsessive compulsive tendencies like that have actually been diagnosed. And I'm like, well, I, I don't want to just put myself in a situation where I'm sweating over the day-to-day -day details and manipulating this and manipulating that. In some contexts, I just want to put the diet in place and cruise and enjoy the ride. 
That, that's interesting. I never would have thought that of you. You seem like a pretty chill person, but um, maybe it's just online. It comes across that way. <laughs> well, so I mean, now that this has become the uh, Tourette syndrome podcast of the fitness industry, so one thing that happens is uh, for a lot of people who are diagnosed as a child is that the symptoms do tend to subside as you age and get older. Uh, it doesn't happen for everybody, but for some people it does. And so for me, uh, you know, it really took quite a turn for the better uh, when I probably got to about the age of, I don't know, 11 or 12. And so like at this point, I, you know, I'm, you, you would never think that, but I, I think some of, some of those things kind of linger and like, that's just a thing I know about myself. So if I have an opportunity to minimize my tendency to sweat over the small stuff and really get bogged down in the minutia, I try to, I try to take a different route just so it doesn't, you know, just so it doesn't occupy my mind too much. So like Helms and I have talked about this on different podcasts, but we were chilling in Finland and I was kind of embarrassed to admit to him like, yeah, my last prep, like it was my best prep ever. I actually didn't track my macros. And he was like, dude, I didn't either last time. And <laughs> like, I, I felt like I, I felt like I had to, to like have street cred in the evidence-based fitness world. But like, I mean, the macros were still doing the work. I just didn't count them, but I mean, they still exist, you know, and they, they were still getting manipulated. But I, I like to, uh, for my own diet, based on my personality type, I like to uh, to just kind of keep it simple. And so that's what I what I mean when I say there are contextual factors. I actually do think that, that there are contexts and instances where refeeds can be really helpful for lifters. But I know for me, the costs outweigh the benefits just because of that, uh, that tendency that I have. So, so that's why I don't use them across the board for everybody. And, you know, I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but I also think, you know, how how far along you are in a diet probably influences their utility, you know? So, so I, I don't want to get too deep into that. I'm sure we'll cover it later, but, but yeah, that, that's kind of my justification for why I think they're academically interesting. And I, I do think there are practical applications, but I just don't use them for the client who happens to be me. Yeah. I'm going to name this podcast, Eric Trexler, intuitive eating for contest prep. <laughs> that there be. you go. Sounds great. <laughs> um, so Helms, um, so Trex kind of gone, went into how he started it, started using refeeds and nonlinear dieting for clients. So for you, what tipped you over to start using it as well? And kind of what what were some of the changes that you observed when you started using it with clients? Yeah, so I think um, an interesting thing for me was that I was a competitor before I was a coach, which is is common. Um, but it means that you know you're much more prone to assume that your anecdotal experiences apply outside of yourself uh, until you're 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 faced with trying it on other people and hopefully you pay attention hopefully you take notes hopefully you're not dogmatic hopefully your your client focused all that good stuff and um i had good influences i was a personal trainer before i became a, uh, a bodybuilding coach and i think that was a really good thing uh, because it made me realize that all the psychotic stuff i do was really abnormal uh and it quickly disabused me of the notion the notion that uh just work harder and be a bodybuilder was the solution to everyone's fitness woes uh and i quickly realized i was a terrible personal trainer and i spent the next you know three or four years um becoming unterrible before i became a bodybuilding coach and i think i started off at least on the right foot so I was very open to uh, people going, this isn't working for me. 
And that's exactly what I found is that uh, refeeds, while I, I would say probably closer to my second or third year of coaching, uh, they became kind of my default setting to start with for contest prep. Uh, and that didn't go well for everyone. Um, and I would say specifically for some of the reasons Trexler talked about, uh, other people I found they would, uh, I don't think it's the same kind of psychological makeup, but, um, they had a really tough time not looking at the refeeds as cheat days or letting them turn into something that they, they weren't intended to be. Um, and also at the very early formation of 3DMJ, I met this guy, Jeff Alberts, you know, and he didn't use them. And he whooped everybody's ass that year in 09 and got two pro cards. And um, that wasn't something he included in his protocols until trying it after meeting us. So very early on, I was aware that uh, this, this absolutely wasn't a necessity. And after consulting with people for a long time, uh, you know, at this point now we're looking at mid-2012, uh, I, I put out the Muscle and Strength Pyramid videos, which eventually became my book. And I tried to create this hierarchy of information. And if you look up... The only thing less important in my hierarchy of, of, uh, of nutrition uh, than refeeds, which fits into the, the category of nutrient timing, how you place calories on their total content, is supplements. And if you were to really pin me down and go, okay, if we just took like refeeds and diet breaks versus creatine, I would, I would struggle to maintain that order. So it's, it's more like the collective <laughs> concept of nutrient timing versus the collective concept of of supplements. So despite my own personal anecdotes, probably creating some kind of bias towards thinking, hey, these are the only way to, to, to get consistently lean and drop body fat without crushing yourself. Um, I became disabused of that through experience. And, and also just as I read the literature and I understood what was out there, um, I think early on, I was very likely to confirm my own biases. But I'm just glad that I um, was exposed to probably a more scientific mindset and plenty of people who did not share the same anecdotes and people who didn't do well with them. So with that said, I also noticed that there are a lot of people who did respond like me. Um, if you talk to a lot of different coaches who you use refeeds, they will note that some people seem to gain weight after a refeed. Some people seem to lose weight and they'll kind of have these plateaus, drops, plateaus, drops. Um, and some people don't have much of a shift. Um, and I think that's that 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 was probably my my coaching anecdotal experience um and yeah I, and i'm starting to lose the actual thread of the original question did i answer it or have i just been talking for no reason uh no i mean that was great um like basically the question was <laughs> um no but seriously like uh, there was a lot of good stuff in there uh some of which i was actually surprised to hear so that was good um so basically the question was when or how did your experience change with coaching clients through contest preps or any sort of diet when you started using uh, refeeds? Good. Okay. So I have a few more things to add there. A couple things I also noticed was uh, using refeeds helped me more predictably peak my athletes um, because you get a little, you get a progressively more specific visual outcome uh, when you give someone a refeed or two refeeds after low days as they're getting leaner and leaner to what you're going to be trying to do on game day. So I would say probably the most practical, obvious thing that doesn't require any assumptions about what's happening to true body composition is that that's really aided me as a bodybuilding contest prep coach has been the opportunity to observe their response to higher carb, higher calorie days and the time course of it. Uh, so getting, you know, once I get within a certain proximity of a show, I like to get 
uh, multiple videos or pictures uh, post and during refeed so I can see at what point do they seem to look their best and that becomes a model for what I do to peak them for their shows. Um, so that's that's one other small thing um, and also once I saw that a lot of people uh, not a lot I would say a minority but a notable minority of people had these refeeds turn into blowouts I started to frame them differently and make sure that I talked to them about their prior experiences uh, and didn't just start them as, as just a pure default um, uh, because it's one thing to frame them as uh, this is just as important part of the plan this isn't an opportunity to go out to eat but this is us increasing calories for uh, physiological purposes um, at least ostensibly uh, then that, that that's great but if if that's not something someone can internalize uh, then that is a definite con um, so uh, I think framing it uh, and not keeping it as just an automatic default but having uh, a more I would say complete and extensive discussion with someone before taking them on and setting up their diet as to whether I think refeeds are appropriate or not and in what form and in what context what their prior experiences are I think that that was something that was really good for me so I didn't just assume that they would have the same experience I had and Helms if I could just jump in very briefly so you you previously mentioned that you know some people view a refeed as a cheat day Mm-hmm. Um, and there's two ways to look at that. Some people kind of do, do like you said, like a blowout and, and kind of overdo it. Some people feel annoyed that they are deviating from the plan for a cheat day. And they're like, ah, oh, this is an unnecessary increase in calories that I don't psychologically need. Um, but another thing to keep in mind is that yet another group of clients will, if you say, hey, we have two refeed days, so, you know, Saturday and Sunday are, are high, high calorie, high carb days. Some people don't see it that way. They don't see five normal days and two high carb days. They see two normal days and five low carb days. So mm-hmm. you, you create a discrepancy between a standard diet day and a refeed day. And whether that's seen as extra carbs or five days of carb removal really just comes down to whether they see that glass as being half empty or half full. And so that's another psychological thing to keep in mind when deciding if, if this is a strategy that should be implemented. No, that's really well said, Eric. And I think um, since we're here, I, I think I want to keep painting in this, this these lines, if you don't mind, Abel. But yeah, yeah. Um, I, I like 3DMJ works with a lot of contest bodybuilders. I do describe myself as a bodybuilding coach. But it's not to say we don't have a lot of, you know, quote unquote, recreational bodybuilders, people who, you know, follow the scene and have uh, aesthetic non-competition goals. And when I deal with those clients, when they're going through fat loss phases, especially when they have a large amount of body fat that that they want to lose and they're asking for my help doing so, um, I frame this completely differently and I think about them differently. I'm not thinking like, how do we mitigate, uh, you know, any physiological adaptation? I think about, okay, this person um, is coming to me and they've probably in many cases have tried to do this on their own before. And they've probably also successfully lost the weight at some point. But now they're finding themselves again trying to lose that weight. And in my experience, a lot of people are very, very focused on the task of losing fat, but not they don't do much and they don't understand how uh, to get to the point where they are, are, are living a slightly different lifestyle that will maintain that fat loss. So... Um, and I talked about this on the Sigma Nutrition radio podcast I did with Menno. I really enjoyed that one. Um, but so not to rehash that completely for those who've heard it, but uh, I frame it as practicing maintenance. And um, 
I would say some of the uh, the non-physiologically focused data, like the original data on diet breaks by Wing and colleagues, was basically saying, hey, they got to the same place, but they took these intentional breaks from dieting instead of the diet breaking. And that's where I use that probably very tired metaphor of uh, you don't drive your car until it breaks down to get your oil changed. You get your oil changed so your car doesn't break down. And the parallel in uh, someone who was trying to lose a fairly substantial amount of body fat is that once you are really starting to have to white knuckle it to continue the fat loss process, it's probably better to intentionally then go, all right, let's eat at maintenance and see how I can live in this, in this new body and with these new habits that I've hopefully been uh, learning. And if, uh, if I'm doing my job right as a coach, uh, a lot of it's not just, all right, let me see the scale go down on a week-to-week basis, thumbs up when it has, but hey, let's think about what's coming after this. In fact, I spend, I would say, 80% of my time with a general fat loss client, or I would. I don't have many clients at the moment who aren't competitors, um, you know, talking about how do we get to where we, we want to go and then think about what life is going to be like. How do we incorporate? So what are the take-homes we can have from this process? I'm in their ear constantly about maintenance, even though they're super focused on the scale today or or the changes in their in the mirror today um so when they start to get a little bit of diet fatigue and they're like coach i got this i'm white knuckling it through i can push i'm hungry but it doesn't matter um i will sometimes discuss with them hey instead of white knuckling it why don't we give you know a couple weeks shot at just just trying to see what it's like to live here because it's it's not as hard we can cut the cardio down substantially we can increase your calories by 500 and let's see what food options there are this way. Oh, look at that. You can actually incorporate some more starchy carbohydrates and and fattier foods. And maybe this is a little more sustainable and they get to get a little glimpse of the future. And then once they feel recharged, they're ready, they're motivated, they're annoyed by being on a, uh, you know, a practicing maintenance phase, quote unquote, then we dive back in and you can repeat that process. Uh, and I think, and I know we'll talk about this later, I think for more general pop clients done the right way, uh, this might really help them get an opportunity to sustain fat loss successfully instead of it being this complete divergence from their, their, their life that got them to that point where they want to lose fat. And then something that is absolutely not sustainable because it's a, you know, relatively hardcore diet and they develop no skills or they're not in the intentional mind frame of developing skills to then maintain it. So uh, that that's a little aside um, outside of the, the realm of bodybuilding. Yeah, no, I actually really like that. And um, I think that's probably my biggest hope that that could really help people. And those are not bodybuilders, like you said, but I mean, I'm sure both of you have seen these people. I interact with them actually quite a lot who, I mean, if they look back at their past couple of years, most of it was not maintenance eating or quote unquote normal eating. It was kind of a cyclical yo-yo binging and purging period kind of all meshed together and you know they might be able to complete a 16 week long diet and they might be able to be super consistent never cheat on their diet but you know many times i'm thinking man like what makes you think that once you complete it you won't return to your old habits i mean you might be able to but there is nothing in your recent past that kind of speaks of that so i think the practicing maintenance thing can be a really valuable thing for those people so i'm i'm glad that you brought that up and then another thing so i actually wanted to address this later but uh, since tracks brought this up I find this really interesting how people have kind of a discrepant experience with refeeds often or diet breaks for that matter. So some people really enjoy it and they get a nice psychological relief out of that. They find it easier to go back on the diet. But a lot of people, like Trek said, they just see it as, okay, so those are my normal days and the five days leading up to that. 
is kind of the suffering period. So Helms, did you also see that in, in, in your practice? And then Trex, I'm curious of your personal experiences with that as well, because I definitely heard that before. I, I have. Some people, they, they feel like their momentum gets disrupted. Like I was in the zone, I flipped the switch. I'm all about just, you know, I'm, I'm grinding. I got this done. And here you go messing this up, giving me, you know, like 800 more calories or, or whatever it is. And now I, I can, okay, I can go out to eat with my significant other. I can eyeball it. Um, you know, I, and that, that makes me a little anxious. Um, and I can fit these other foods in. I'm going to go get Froyo. Um, and they, they feel, or it actually does, that it's eroding that mindset and it's taking them off track. Uh, and then sometimes the day after refeeds, people will experience a lot of hunger. Um, and that could be somewhat psychologically mediated. That could be medi- mediated by other things. But some people feel like it is just, you know, throw me a curveball in the middle of when things are going great. Why would you do that? Um, and I think that that's valid. Um, and if I was not doing my job right, and I was someone who was like, no, refeeds are always good, um, I would just carry on and tell them to adapt to my protocols and be like, well, you just need to shift your mindset. You know, it's, it's, it's just as important to be on point on those days, and it's not an erosion. It's different. Um, but I think that's almost uh, a disacknowledgement, which I don't think is a word, but you get what I'm saying, of the like the, the social reality of their life and their natural tendency uh the fact that they are you know in the pocket fighting hunger and trying to stay focused for a goal that that is challenging and i think um that that can be disruptive for some people and for those people you probably don't want to do it unless you really do feel like it's needed. You know, those people are the ones who are also more likely to to put up their hand and call uncle. You know, like, man, I'm coach. I'm just, I'm really tired. I'm irritable at work. I'm, you know, struggling in life. Uh, what do you think about a couple of weeks in maintenance so I can just catch my breath and go back in? So I think it's important um, in situations like that to make them a little more client-led. Um, so, yeah, that's my two cents there. Awesome. Uh, Trex, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... So, so just to give some context, uh, you know, Helms and 3DMJ, they mostly work with, uh, you know, people who have bodybuilding type goals and aspirations and many of them are, but not all are competitors. I usually work with, uh, people who are not competitive physique athletes. You know, we've got some body composition goals. We've got some strength goals, but you know, being on stage in a bikini or speedo is not part of the equation. That's not the end point. And so when it comes to those individuals, um, you know, I, I kind of view refeeds and diet breaks as tools that can be used. And like I said, from an academic perspective, I do think there are instances where they can be helpful, but I don't use them until I have a reason to, um, especially because like I said, we're not necessarily going to end up on stage in a physique competition with a lot of the clients I work with. So um, then the question is, well, when do we need to use it? And if I've got a client who, you know, a rigid kind of day in and day out stable calorie number is not compatible with their life outside of lifting, if they need some days that are more flexible, we do it. And I, I do that all the time. Um, if I've got a client who's coming to me, not because they want to do a physique competition, but because they feel like their previous dieting experiences have left them in a spot where, uh, you know, maybe some refeeds might be helpful for them. Like they're recovering after a competition phase. We, we might do some of that. Um, 
if we're if we are losing a dramatic amount of, of weight or we're getting super super lean for something like a photo shoot we might use them but you know the big thing is we've got to have a reason to so so my default position is we have refeeds and diet breaks as a tool and there are instances where they can be useful for practical reasons or psychological reasons or i believe in some cases physiological reasons but we don't really pull that card until we have to and it usually becomes very clear when we have to you know so working with somebody brand new I can kind of get a sense of how they're going to psychologically respond to a refeed or a diet break, but I can't be certain. And so my general guiding principle with coaching is if I'm going to introduce a layer of complication into the the program or the approach, I better have a reason to do it. And I think that's ultimately um, my training as a researcher uh, kind of showing like, because I started doing research before I started coaching. And like, if you're going to complicate your research question or complicate your research intervention or something like that, you better have a damn good reason because you're adding some some extra moving parts here that may go well, but may not go well. And I kind of view it the same thing. Like there are some clients who based on their personality type, you get to know them and you're like, you know what? They're going to really like having refeeds or diet breaks because of their social life or kind of practical reasons. They need a little more flexibility on certain days. You're, you're going to know just from getting to know clients, you're going to re- recognize people who are going to overthink it. And if they do a refeed and the scale weight goes up by, you know, half of a kilo, they're not going to like that and they're not going to respond well. So, you know, you have to kind of feel things out and and get a sense of whether or not refeeds and diet breaks would be a useful tool. For some people, they're pretty much off the table regardless, just based on their personality type. For other people, you you look at it as a viable approach, but then ultimately, like I said, I got to get a reason to actually play that card and say, we are going to introduce this into what we're doing. And maybe it's that they're, they're noticing by the end of a long week, they're just running out of gas in the gym and they need a little boost. Like maybe they are going into some of those workouts, pretty glycogen depleted and they just don't have it. Or maybe they're burnt out on the diet and we need to do a, a week or two of a diet break. Um, and, and, you know, I will also note that sometimes diet breaks find their way to you rather than you seeking them out. If you reach a spot where you're kind of just plateauing with body weight, one way to do a diet break, in my opinion, is accepting a plateau for a couple weeks and knowing when it's not time to double down and push harder. So sometimes a diet break is simply not making a change quickly and saying, okay, looks like we're kind of reaching a plateau let's settle at that plateau and kind of focus on our training, get a great series of workouts in, and we'll know when we are ready to make the next push. And so, so that, that's another aspect that I think sometimes people overlook is like, so for me, I mentioned with my own preps, uh, I didn't do any refeeds, but you could argue that I did something approximating diet breaks just because I knew when it wasn't time to push even harder. And I just said, okay, Looks like things are pretty much stable here. I'm okay with stable for a couple weeks. uh, And then we'll pick up and and really push later. And sometimes that was just like, I'm not in the mindset to really grind out another calorie reduction. And some of it was like, dude, I was working on my PhD, you know? And I was like, man, with all the stuff I have going on right now is not the time to suck the diet in even harder. 
And uh, so, so it's it's a complicated thing of trying to identify who's going to respond well to it. When might it be useful? But like I said, it, it's something that I only use when I think it's necessary. Um, but I do think there are times where it is quite helpful. Yeah, th- thank you for that. That was actually very insightful. And uh, I think the conversation so far was actually very informative and very surprising to me. I expected both of you to be a lot more kind of hardcore about using it more often than not. So I'm actually uh, surprised by how balanced you guys are with your views on this whole topic. So um, with that, I kind of want to transition into some of the often touted benefits of refeeds and diabrakes, and that is lean mass preservation and metabolic rate preservation or, you know, mitigating some of the metabolic adaptations that people go through during dieting. So, um, Helms, why don't you uh, kick this off? So what, at this stage, how compelling do you think the evidence is for uh, these things? So metabolic rate and then lean mass retention. Good question. Hey guys, just a brief interruption. I want to let you know that round two of my group coaching service has now opened up. In this coaching system, you will get a customized training and diet setup tailored for your needs, detailed guidance on training progression and diet management, and you will be able to interact with me and other members of the group, both in written format and on calls during the week. And for a limited time now, you can hop on a call with me and we can talk over your goals and see if you are a good fit for this. So if this sounds interesting to you, then check the link in the video or show description below and you can book a call with me. But if you would rather just send an email, you can also do that. Also check out the show description for that. All right, that's it. Let's continue with the show. How compelling do you think the evidence is for uh, these things? So metabolic rate and then lean mass retention. Good question. Um, so I think I'm going to start broaden and narrow it down so people can kind of understand some of the the paradigm we're operating within. So if you're familiar with the concept of like metabolic adaptation, that's uh, a larger piece of uh, what we would classify under the umbrella of energy availability or low energy availability. Um, in outside generally of kind of the bodybuilding realm, um, when, when this is talked about academically, it's uh, relative energy deficiency in sport. And this is basically the process of conservation of, of energy by slowing or shutting down in some cases, like amenorrhea, um, physiological processes in the body. Uh, and I think when we, when we talk about metabolic adaptation and kind of the bodybuilding body composition community, it's relatively narrow in scope and it leads us to not really think about it too critically Uh, and we have to think about well how do we metabolically adapt how do we just reduce energy expenditure that has to come at the cost of some physiological process uh, requiring less energy uh, or or having a lower energy output so uh, the 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 changes that are associated with reds or low energy availability are how we get metabolic adaptation but the consequences of that are things like changes in the hormonal environment, change in the immunological function, uh, change in uh, energy levels, body temperature, all that good stuff, all the stuff that, that we complain about and that sucks from the process of dieting. That's our, our qualitative experience of those physiological changes. 
So, you know, to some degree, to bring up leptin again, like uh, like Trexler mentioned earlier, um, if you're going to get really lean, you're you're going to kind of get all of it. Uh, I think there's a there's a correlation between body fat percentage and leptin uh, that's something around like 0.85, if I recall correctly. So so a huge component of 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 this is just how lean do you get but the process of of how you get that lean does impact it as well and if we kind of understand this we we understand that it has to um if you were to get all of your deficit by by starving yourself completely for six weeks or being on a moderate diet for for 30 weeks i think most people would intuitively understand that those would have different outcomes and the data largely supports that and i think you know, a couple studies that pop in my head are are from the 90s, where, uh, and this is always difficult when you compare between studies, not within studies. So that's a caveat to what I'm about to say. Uh, but there's data when you look at LH pulsatility, so luteinizing hormone, uh, where if you were to uh, completely fast uh, women or put them on a severe calorie deficit, they start to show the precursors to amenorrhea or oligomenorrhea, disruption of the menstrual cycle. Uh, and then when you give them one huge uh, day of, of, of overfeeding, like 4,500 calories for an average size woman versus multiple days in maintenance, even though the same rough calorie surplus or total energy availability is achieved uh, when you take out the time component, uh, only the one where there's multiple days uh, of this uh, energy availability being restored uh, is the LH pulsatility normalized. So I think that that's a that kind of tells us that there there must be some time component. Now, how much we can game that system, I think, is really what's up for grabs. And for a long time, uh, I have tried not to do anything with with this mentally and try to explain some mechanism before the research comes out. I remember a long time ago, uh, Ian McCarthy, who was uh, a refeed skeptic of me back in like, I think 2012, uh, I, I told him some of my anecdotes and he said, well, what's the mechanism? How is that happening? And I said, I don't know. Um, and I think that's something that you have to be really comfortable with when you have anecdotal observations, when there's not data to support it. The biggest mistakes that uh, are quote unquote attributed to bro science is when people have an observation and then try to explain it without any data to support that. We just know what we're observing. Um, so I've, I've never known if, you know, well, we have data now, but I have never assumed that I was seeing these, these magical changes in metabolic, uh, function or output in RMR, total energy expenditure, uh, that, uh, would result in, in fat loss after these refeeds. I've always been open to the idea that it could simply be stress mediated water retention going away and being able to see whether or not I progressed and then making me not make unnecessary cuts or additions of cardio or just be less stressed because I think I'm plateaued and that kind of cascading and snowballing. Um, so, you know, I think that that's probably a big function of it. I also think maybe just some of the, the hunger mediation or improved adherence could be uh, reducing overall stress loads and that having, you know, net benefits. Um, and I would say the data bears that out. I'm much more, um, I'm much less skeptical of there being adherence and uh, psychological and social and social benefits to kind of the concept of practicing maintenance. And that's actually where the data started. Uh, that whole wing study wasn't like uh, the, the, the most recent 2017 burn study. That was, you know, individuals going to a weight loss counseling session and then taking breaks from it and then going back to it and then still seeing the successful weight loss. Um, 
versus, you know, these, these, you know, like a metabolic award study where they fed you and then deter deuterium water to see what your, uh, you know, energy expenditure was. It wasn't a super controlled environment. They've always been, or at least they started as these applied studies. And some of the research indicates that, uh, there are those type of benefits. Um, some of the critiques of the 2017 burn study, which really quickly to summarize the results, they had one group doing uh, a continuous diet and another group doing intermittent uh, two-week-long diet breaks, if I recall correctly. I think it's three and two. So three weeks of dieting, two weeks off dieting. Um, they had some interesting outcomes. Uh, one of the outcomes was that more fat was lost per time of calorie restriction in the group that did the diet breaks. Uh, and, and the critique of that, well, hey, this wasn't a metabolic ward study. It could have been just that adherence was higher. And I think that's very valid and possible, you know, and, and therefore that, that might be one of the reasons why uh, you saw greater fat loss. I think the interesting thing, though, is that you also saw greater retention of RMR when scaled to uh, lean, lean body mass. So typically when you lose more body fat, if that was caused by greater adherence, you would have more suppression of metabolic rate, you'd have a lower metabolic rate. And uh, so that that's, that's one little interesting thing that maybe there's both psychological and physiological things happening when refeeds occur. Um, but the really interesting thing that I saw about that burn study is that when they did the six month follow up, more weight loss had been maintained by the group doing the, uh, the diet breaks, which which might go to that whole practicing maintenance thing. But from the very start, when looking at like leptin changes in response to overfeeding and actual uh, improvements in, in RMR, we're talking very small amounts. The classic 72-hour overfeeding uh, study by, by Durlewanger, Durlewanger, not sure how to pronounce it, sorry. Uh, there was a pretty large uptick in calories, pretty small uh, increase in, in total energy expenditure. And the only caveat to that study is that was truly an overfeeding study, not a refeeding study. They didn't go from a deficit to, to a... Uh, you know, to, to maintenance, they went from not being in the study to being overfed, if I recall correctly, or being at maintenance to being overfed. So I, I just don't think that there are going to be huge changes in resting metabolic rate, uh, energy expenditure uh, from this. I think the changes are going to be small and might build up and mount over time, and that probably some of the psychological benefits uh, would, would overshadow the potential physiological benefits. But there are hints in the literature that there are potential physiological benefits like that. Uh, the fact that there was more uh, fat loss in that burn study, and even if it was attributed to greater adherence, then why was there you know, better RMR preservation when you'd expect the opposite? So little things like that have always kind of kept my, my eyebrow raised and interested in the possibility of there being some degree of preservation of energy expenditure, um, even though I don't necessarily think that's the, the primary beneficial mechanism. Right. Thank you. That, that was great. And uh, Trex, any any thoughts on um, thoughts on that? Maybe the meta. So the burn study. That's the Metador study, right? That you're yes. referring to. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Trex, any thoughts on that, or just kind of the research behind it? RMR preservation and then uh, lean mass preservation, anything like that? I think Helms is a total hack. So I would just disregard uh, <laughs> most of what he said. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think he gave a great overview of the literature and just a couple of things that I would add when looking at this literature, you know. So the short-term refeed stuff, um, you know, when people say, oh, there's there's no evidence to think that a refeed would be helpful in these scenarios. Well, I mean, we definitely know with a great deal of certainty that a, you know, overfeed, a brief overfeeding period with high carbohydrate will increase total energy expenditure and will increase leptin. 
And we do know that if an individual is showing all the telltale signs of metabolic adaptation and you inject them with leptin, they go away. And so I, I, th there's at least some link there. So anyone who says there's no link is, is being a bit hyperbolic. The, the thing that remains unresolved is, can we actually thread the needle? Can we do it effectively? Can we do a higher carb boost where we get to maintenance or a little above maintenance where we can actually leverage that increase in energy expenditure and leptin without completely... Uh, so like the problem with the Durlowanger study obviously is... Yeah, it worked. Energy expenditure up, leptin up, but the influx of calories was far too large for it to be useful because ultimately at the end of the day, they were going to store a ton of fat from what they were doing there. So so it's the question is, can we thread that needle? And I, I don't know if we have a great deal of direct evidence to say that any short-term uh, type of refeeding window is unequivocally going to be super helpful with that. Um, but, but there is a mechanistic link there that at least makes it plausible. Um, now, one thing that Helms mentioned with the Matador study is trying to put these pieces together in the results and say like, well, okay, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's some adherence related thing that isn't directly quantified in the results. Um, and maybe that's kind of hard to square with the changes in resting metabolic rate. But I think another thing to keep in mind is that when we talk about energy expenditure in the context of metabolic adaptation, we are mostly focused, you know, that the most influential changes happening to non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which in that Matador study, uh, I, I don't think they, they quantified and so then the question is, which of the unquantifiable things was, was contributing? Was it unquantified differences in adherence or unquantified differences in non-exercise activity or potentially a combination of the two? Uh, of course, the, the glaring thing there is that they're both unquantified. So uh, I don't know, take your pick or you know, say a little bit of both. I mean, th there's room for interpretation here. And so I think that's why Helms and I have talked about this on other podcasts, uh, the Stronger by Science podcast, actually number one podcast on all podcasting platf platforms uh, last I checked. But uh, we'll have to dispute that on, on off the air, but go ahead. Yeah, uh, but uh, I'm kidding. But the... Um, I'm sorry, what was I saying? Helms interrupted me extremely rudely, <laughs> threw me off. You were saying uh, the p potential unquantified mechanisms that contributed to the outcomes in the Matador study. Oh, yeah. So so Helms and I were on another podcast talking about this, and, and we both pretty much agreed. If, if you say, I'm not convinced by the refeeding literature, and therefore I won't use them, I'm not going to treat you like an idiot. Like, that is a completely defensible position, but it is still also defensible to say, Based on the limited data available, uh, I think there might be something there. And I think this looks like something that has some practical utility and pending further evidence. I might use it because uh, actually Brandon Roberts, who Helms and I wrote a paper with a couple years ago, a year or two ago, I don't know. He had a great review of all the studies looking on his Instagram. He went by like, you know, study by study over a week or two of time talking about all these studies that have looked at different interventions that could be classified as refeeds or diet breaks. Some studies showed benefits, some studies didn't, but you never really saw a single study where you're like, damn, I bet they really regret doing that refeed. I bet they really regret doing that diet break. So th there's enough wiggle room in the literature to say, I'm not convinced yet. There's enough wiggle room in the literature to say, I think there's some potential and some promise. If you definitively say they're definitely useless or they definitely need to be part of your approach, 
those are the only two outcomes I can fully disagree with. I, I don't think we have enough to say conclusively they're useless or conclusively they are absolutely fantastic and should be always used. Because one of the things you'll find in all of this literature is that non-exercise activity is the hardest component of, uh, of uh, thermogenesis to actually quantify. And so it's always that missing puzzle piece. And whenever there's Whenever, whenever there's a discrepancy and we say, hey, where the hell did all these calories come from? Where did this deficit come from that favored this group versus the other? It usually comes down to two unquantified things. Do we really know how adherent they were? And how could we even hope to guess their non-exercise activity thermogenesis? And those are the two things that are always going to play. They're going to in- introduce some ambiguity and uncertainty into that um, that interpretation. And one other thing I'd like to mention in this context is when you're looking at studies that are saying we tested refeeds or diet breaks to mitigate the effects of metabolic adaptation. So, you know, they're, they're treating refeeds and diet breaks as the solution. Well, if you're going to test a solution, you got to introduce a problem. And I think that's one of the overlooked things when we see some of these studies where the nonlinear approaches might fall a little bit short is like, if you're saying that this intervention was supposed to help with metabolic adaptation and all the things that come with it, first you have to establish, is there any reason to believe that either of these groups would have had anything resembling metabolic adaptation? I mean, did they have a substantial loss of body weight? Usually metabolic adaptation, we're starting to see it in interventions where people lose at least 10% of their body weight, or they are getting really, really, really shredded, which usually involves losing 10%, a huge percent of your body, body fat along the way, right? So, so 10% of your body weight for people who are going from a, you know, a high BMI to a lower BMI. And then of course, we also see some of these things when people get absolutely shredded, which always involves some degree of, of low energy availability. So when you're looking at a refeed study, you know, one of the ones that comes up to me is uh, the the one by uh, Bill Campbell and colleagues a year or two ago. Um, and the, the abstracts for that study have been out for a while, but a lot of people look at that and they say, you know, this new letter to the editor totally debunked it, which I disagree with. Um, but they also say like, wow, it didn't seem to effectively stop all this metabolic adaptation. But you look at it, and we're talking about two groups that lost about three three kilograms of weight, um, and didn't get. I mean, they they were fairly lean individuals who got leaner, but I mean, they weren't stepping on stage at the end of the competi- at the end of the intervention. And so, I guess one of my questions is how how much metabolic adaptation did you expect it to prevent in that scenario? No, I totally agree with that. Yeah, it helps. Um, yeah, I, I would love you to comment on the Bill Campbell study. And, you know, we had that little bit of a back and forth on Instagram and you kindly replied when I brought up the criticism that I saw for that study. And that is that the preserved lean mass could be just attributed to more loaded glycogen because it was relatively shortly after the refeed. So if you could address that and just your your thoughts on that line of research. Yeah, and I hope you don't mind if I if I wax philosophical just for a second. The um, so this is all open access. You can find my uh, peer reviewer comments on both the original Bill Campbell study and then also the letter to the editor uh, and uh, and the reply. Um, so yep, I was the, I was the reviewer. So it was my job to try to be objective with this, um, and yeah, I did the best I could. And I. I, I think I described the biases I could have going into it and all my experiences on this topic leading up to, you know, 2019, I think when I reviewed this. 
Um, but it was interesting because I tried to view the study objectively and some of the critiques uh, that, that, that have come out against it, to me, I think it's really useful when you're looking at something. Uh, if your critiques themselves uh, don't follow logic and you're almost kind of basically throwing everything in the wall and seeing what sticks, that's an opportunity to self-evaluate. Do I have some bias? So one of the, uh, the interesting critiques I saw was that, uh, and this wasn't one of the ones that made it into the letter to the editor, uh, which I think is important because I, I would have had a lot more to say if it had been there, was that the, the dry fat-free mass difference between groups came down to uh, water retention or could have. Now, that's, 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 a, that's a strange, in my opinion, uh, critique. And if, if you find yourself saying that, I think you're well justified in saying that that could have been the difference as to why there was not a difference in the fat-free mass difference. Um, but the dry fat-free mass corrected one, which, by the way, had a p-value less than 0.001 difference between groups, you have to assume that the author's intention to correct for any water retention not only was unsuccessful, but actually did the exact opposite of what it was supposed to do. And that by trying to correct for water retention, they somehow magnified uh, the, the difference between groups and added water that was then picked up as lean body mass somehow by ultrasound in the, uh, in, in the comparison. So that, that's, that's one of those, those opportunities where instead of looking to pick apart a study in a logical way that is you know, critical, critical and, and skeptical, it's mostly like I don't think refeeds do, do do anything. So how can I can I can I find that that is the case in this one? Uh, another one was before Bill Campbell had come out and, and explained what they had done on their diet prior to uh, the assessment that that the the, the forty eight hours the assumption that they had gone off the diet or been eating and that could have uh, been the difference. Uh, and then when he actually came out and said it, he was like, no, no, we we instructed them to stay on the diet. Um, so. I, I find those two things, if, if, if someone listening or yourself uh, found that, that those were things you were leaning on, that may indicate that you have you know, a bias against refeeds. And that's okay. Like I said, I probably have a bias towards them based on my personal experience. And if someone else has tried them and they don't work, that's fine. But it is always helpful because then you can be a little more logical and skeptical in, in, in your analysis. Um, and I would agree, like y there wasn't that much of a drop at all in RMR in these two groups. So I, I don't know how much we would expect to see in terms of differences uh, when there's only a few kilos uh, of body weight loss. So anyway, um, I think this is an interesting study for sure. Uh, and even when the letter to the editor was written uh, and they assessed it per protocol uh, versus uh, per who actually, per, per completion, uh, and uh, with, with that reanalysis, there was still a significant difference between groups in dry fat-free mass. And now we can say that, hey, I don't know if, if the method of assessing dry fat-free mass was sufficient to be accurate. That's a fair critique. Uh, I, I haven't seen any reliability or validity, I should say, uh, data on, on this method of assessing dry fat-free mass. So it is possible uh, that it is not sufficiently effective at, at, at accounting for you know, water retention. Um, but, you know, I've also heard people say that, you know, refeeds will reduce water retention. So I think you have to have a, have a consistent application of, of your, your view of what refeeds do. Um, either, you know, refeeds are, are dropping off water or they're making you retain water. And then that is influencing the outcomes. But you can't have it both ways just to make sure that, you know, whatever difference you see is, is not real. So minor comment. Um, 
Now, I think a very valid critique uh, that wasn't in the letter to the editor is that because the measurement was only two days after um, the, the diet finished, um, that that might have not been enough time for any stored glycogen uh, and the associated water with it to not be confounding the results. Um, but I think even if you consider glycogen and its bound water, and assuming that glycogen-bound water wasn't corrected for in the dry fat-free mass difference, we're still looking at a relatively large, um, you know, difference between the groups. I want to say it was like, jeez, uh, uh, like one point, it, it was close to two kilos? 1.7. Yeah, 1.7 kilos. So I don't have the paper up. I just have a godlike uh, memory. <laughs> we're all record. very impressed, I think. I think it's Since the, this isn't getting recorded on Skype and you can't see me looking at the paper. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. We, we don't have, you know, 1.7 kilograms of, of muscle glycogen in our body. You know, I, I think on average, if you look at the body weights of these individuals, I would guess, what do you think, Trex? Like, you know, 500, 500 grams of, of glycogen maybe? And maybe more because they're resistance trained, but, but yeah, something Fair. around there. So yeah, even if one group had zero grams of glycogen stored, which absolutely did not, that, that's, <laughs> they're not completely glycogen depleted, and the other was super compensated, it doesn't explain that difference. I mean, at most, you might say, okay, let's say one group was at, based on, you know, resistance training studies, 60, 70% of the normal glycogen, the other group was at 100. And then if you multiply that by the water retention, it, it still doesn't even get you to a kilo. So I think it could be part of the difference. Uh, and then you could also put on top of that the measurement, uh, the, the, maybe the, the unknown validity of this measurement, and that could explain the difference. But that's, it's equally as possible that there was actually a difference in dry fat-free mass retention that would have been there even multiple days after that two-day measurement. I don't know. And this is really the first study on it. So I guess I have been surprised by the, the willingness of some people to wholly reject these findings or see the letter to the editor as a debunking, when in my opinion, uh, the letter to the editor slightly modified the outcomes. Um, you know, they clarified that indeed there was a between group difference only in dry fat-free mass. And there's only pre and post differences, which you can actually see if you look at the, uh, the results. Uh, the way they uh, framed the discussion uh, didn't, you know, strictly line up with that. But I think that's more of a statistical interpretation point rather than some type of error on the author's part, in my opinion. But ultimately, this, I don't think the letter to the editor changed the outcomes much at all. And the letter to the editor didn't address that 48-hour difference or uh, potential of water retention. And I don't think those would be, at least that second part, wouldn't be a valid critique in my mind. And if I could build on that a little bit, um, first of all, I like Jackson. How do you pronounce his last name? I always say it wrong. Pios. 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 I like Jackson. He does good stuff. Um, so, so I don't want to. I don't want it to seem like I'm like you know trashing his letter to the editor. And there are aspects of it that I agree with. So, uh, and I I have the receipts <laughs> to indicate that I agree with it. So my metabolic adaptation manual. I published it in like March 2019 before this paper hit the. I mean, I cited the abstracts in in that manual because the paper I don't think was available yet and. In it, I didn't talk about the dry fat-free mass because I figured some people are going to say that's not a validated measurement, so I'm just going to ignore that. And when I talked about the resting metabolic rate and the fat-free mass, uh, I, I said exactly what the letter to the editor says. So I agree with Jackson. I said these interactions were not significant, and, and the authors presented that quite clearly in the text. So it's not like there was some insidious... Uh, cover-up going on or that the results were, were withheld and this was found in the raw data upon further review. I mean, that's just right there in the table. So, I mean, 
I was like, yeah, that's not a significant interaction, but let's look at the differences. Let's look at the numbers and interpret those because that's what we should always do. We should never make purely p-value based decisions. So that's the one thing is that I agree with that general like, hey, hold your horses on the interpretation because, yeah, none of those two interactions were significant. The dry fat free mass was, but I didn't even open myself up for that criticism because I was like, some people probably don't think that's a validated measurement. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of validation for it yet. Another thing I want to point out about the letter to the editor is that they focused on the intention to treat analysis, which is basically, you know, attrition introduces bias. The fact that people dropped out of a study can introduce bias. And the purpose of an intention to treat analysis is to hopefully account for that bias in some way. But I just want to remind everyone listening, you are 100% smart enough to understand statistics. It's not that complicated unless it's poorly taught. Now, when with this intention to treat analysis, what they basically did was, let's look at the number of people who finished and look at the number of people who started. Um, you know, there was no baseline data available for the people who didn't complete the study. And so the the, the, the method for the intention to treat analysis is, let's assume that everyone who started the study but didn't finish had a change of exactly zero in everything. And so in the letter to the editor, they mentioned when you do that, the effect size goes down. Yes, if you do that to any study for any outcome, no matter whether the effect was big or small or positive or negative, if you go in and double the sample size and assume that half of the sample had an effect of exactly zero, the effect size is smaller. And that's exactly what the intention to treat analysis did. You, you can debate whether or not that's informative. I don't know. I, I think there, it, ideally, if there were some baseline data, you could fit a mixed model that actually uses the trends in the data to appropriately predict uh, you know, what those values would have looked like with an appropriate level of certainty. Um, but, but, you know, that, that is exactly what the intention to treat analysis did. And, uh, the fact that that made the effect size smaller, isn't like, oh my God, look at this, you know, thing that was found deep in the data hiding. It was just, if we assume that a bunch of people had no effect, the effect size goes down. I think mathematically that that's a, that's a very apt description of what it is. Um, I think probably what's more important than what I would like to see done more often, um, in, kind of quote unquote our field of sports nutrition is just reporting attrition rates per group um, because while I, I think it's very difficult and if anyone would know how to do it like like Trexler mentioned maybe there's a mixed model where you could take into some of this into account yeah, I think it's it's difficult to know how attrition affected the outcome you can expect at the group level um, but it is in my opinion almost a, a kind of a, a separate consideration of, all right, the intervention I'm considering nutritionally has a potential to do X if I look at the per protocol outcome. However, there is a X percentage attrition rate, and I really need to consider that before I just throw it at somebody um, because I may be setting them up to fail. And I think that's probably more apparently useful, knowing those two things and seeing those different concepts rather than necessarily combining them just to reduce the overall effect size. 
because it, it isn't accurate to say that we know for sure that the intention to treat analysis is more representative of any given person's outcome or that the per protocol analysis is. I think you need to assess whether or not they'll be able to follow it or not and the validity of the, of the intervention itself and then make some qualitative assessment of that to decide whether or not you want to use it in conjunction with you know a discussion and evaluation of what you're working with. Yeah, and I, I do want to clarify, I'm not you know criticizing the approach that they took because they could have done something better and made a bad decision. They had nothing to work with. There, there, yeah. was, there was no follow-up data. There was no baseline data. So the only assumption that you, there's only two assumptions on the table. One is that everyone had an effect size of exactly zero. We don't know that to be true because the measurements didn't happen. Another assumption would be, I'm sure that their trajectory was exactly the same as the people who did complete it. And that, again, is not uh, an, an assumption that you can say with 100% certainty. Um, and so, yeah, the, the ideal scenario is that they actually did collect, uh, you know, post-test data, even for the people who said, I'm not going to follow the diet anymore. Because as you were getting at uh, Helms, the per-protocol analysis and the intention-to-treat analysis are answering different questions. One answers the question, what is the effect when somebody effectively follows this diet? The intention-to-treat analysis is saying, what is the effect if you tell someone to follow this diet? And it, it kind of builds that attrition and non-compliance and poor adherence. It builds it in, but it works best when you actually have before and after measurements for everyone. Or, or at least before measurements for the people that didn't complete it. And then you can do some mixed modeling and stuff like that. But if you have no post-test data and no pre-test data uh, for the people who didn't complete it, you know, I'm not saying they should have done it, uh, you know, a different way. I'm just saying that there's limited utility of, of a, it's not that there's limited utility. It's that the outcome is predetermined because of how math exists. If you, if you assert that, you know, we're making the assumption on the front end, if you didn't finish the study, your effect size was exactly zero. In all cases, the effect size will go down. Uh, so I, I think as you were getting at Helms, when you don't have pre and post data or even pre data for the people who didn't finish the study, I think the most informative thing you can do is say, oh, it looks like way more people dropped out of that group. So mm, you might want to keep that in mind before you tell somebody to do this diet. Yeah, that's my point exactly. Um, so gentlemen, what, so I was admittedly one of those people who was kind of, uh, I mean, I didn't come up with these justifications for dismissing the study, but the people who did, I was kind of, uh, leaning towards agreeing with that or leaning towards accepting that criticism. And the reason behind that is admittedly, I have a bias against this, but that mainly comes from the fact that I just don't, I just cannot really come up with a possible mechanism for which these two-day refeeds would help preserve lean body mass. I mean, if it's a longer diet break, let's say it lasts for one or two weeks, I can sort of understand because that's a long enough time where you actually start to chronically signal something to your body. And it kind of makes sense that if you chronically signal something, then your body will eventually react in a whatever, positive or negative way, whatever you're signaling. But if it's two days and for five days, you're actually on lower calories than the other group, like what could be one mechanism that helps preserve lean body mass? So could you guys help me out um, like where where I'm ignoring something? Yeah, I think I think that's a very valid way of looking at it. And so here's the thing. I, I, um, I have, have collaborated with Jackson and I still am. And I think he is brilliant. He's one of the um, 
the most talented writers, thinkers I've worked with. And I, I really I really value his opinion. I do, I, I have to talk around this because I don't want to spoil any stuff that he's in the works of publishing. I understand Jackson's perspective because for those who know, he's, he's near the end of completing his PhD on, on diet breaks, not two-day refeeds. And I'll just say without, you know, giving too much information, he has not observed some of the same things that were observed in the Campbell study. So if there's a study on two-day, like you said, uh, refeeds that does seem to preserve lean body mass, uh, and you weren't there to collect that data, but you were there to collect your own data uh, and, and do it well and make sure that what you observed is what you observed, and you added a whole other five days on top of that and you didn't observe the same outcome in a similar population, I think it's very natural to be skeptical of the other outcome. That said, just because it's, it's, it's natural doesn't mean that it's, it's accurate. Um, because I'm sure if you talk to, to Bill Campbell or any of the, his, uh, his, his, his students or, or lab mates who were on that, that study, they felt pretty good about what they did. Um, and I think it's very easy to view the things that you can actually see. You know, what you see is all there is as, oh, that was done correctly. And in absence of knowing how something else was done and seeing a different outcome, it's easy to be suspect of it. So I, I think the problem with a lot of us in the evidence-based community is that we have, uh, we're drawn to science because we like explanations to things, we like understanding things, and we tend to have analytical mindsets. And that also leads, on average, for us to have a, I'm going to say, a poor relationship with uncertainty. Um, so I think inherently, science is about getting really, really comfortable with uncertainty. The statistics are all probabilistic. We don't actually know things until we have multiple studies to confirm it from multiple angles. And realistically, for us to have a really productive conversation on mechanisms and uh, the causes and to know with confidence physiologically why refeeds or diet breaks might be successful might require us to do another five to six years of research. Unfortunately, podcast schedules and Instagram posts and our un 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 unhealthy relationship with uncertainty doesn't really lend us to that. And we are we need to have an answer to why did this refeed study work with one study. And I think that's just not the way it works. So that's my little uh, overall look that if you are trying to find the answers just from the Campbell study, pro or con, against or for, and you have come to firm conclusions on this, I think the issue is really you're, you're not comfortable with uncertainty and you need to just wait, which is not fun. Uh, and science takes a while and that's not cool, but it is the reality if you want to be empirical in your, in your assessments. Now that said, um, I could think of a number of different mechanisms by which uh, even relatively short-term refeeding periods has an outcome. As I mentioned before, uh, we can see sufficient changes in women to actually cause a cessation of the menstrual cycle. So the temporal component is somewhat, uh, not divorced, but at least complementary to the total energy intake and how it has cascades of impacts on us. So if you only require a certain amount of energy to successfully do the type of training that is there, uh, perhaps you see better training outcomes in the days following refeeds because of a better energy status. Um, perhaps overall stress levels are lower, so it's an indirect effect of the psychological outcome. Um, Perhaps, uh, you know, motivation has changed. It could be completely psychologically mediated. Uh, it could be that you view yourself uh, as more full in terms of, you know, you look more muscular, so you feel better about things, and that's another psychological mediated outcome. Um, but, I mean, 
to to uh, to to anyone who's interested, there's an open access article that uh, Jackson Pios is the lead author on. On uh, the, it's a review of all the data in this area that I was happy to be a part of on the theoretical potential benefits of intermittent dieting in athletes, and we go through all the potential physiological and psychological reasons why perhaps coming in and out of a, a deficit could be beneficial. Um, like Eric said, I I don't think. Um, the pure RMR side of it or the, the increases in leptin are going to make a huge difference, but they may add up over time such that you see a, uh, a better preservation of energy expenditure. Um, we even see glimpses in that of the data we've talked about uh, that over time it, do, it does add up even though it is small. Um, but it's like those unquantifiable aspects. It, it could improve uh, non-resting non energy expenditure um, and it could improve training quality. Um, it could improve uh, hormonal markers, uh, but I don't know if that's the, if that that's for sure. I am pretty comfortable with my uncertainty as to why this would happen, um, and I would I'm really excited to see more mechanistic data. And I'm at a point where I'm totally fine with my own personal observations, observation with my clients, and the explanation for these applied outcomes in some of these studies uh, to be caused by things like uh, psychological changes and, and water retention getting getting released and having an overall less stressful experience and not instituting you know calorie reductions or increases in cardio when they didn't need to be there because water retention was masking it. I'm totally fine with that. Um, I, like I said, I think from the start, I've been anecdotally biased by an outcome, but I haven't attributed any kind of physiological explanation to it because I wasn't measuring MPS, my testosterone, leptin, my glycogen levels, or any of the proposed potential mechanisms. I just know uh, that I seem to lose weight more quickly and that a lot of my clients do and that it's it feels like an easier process. So I'm open to, uh, to it being something physiological and interesting and neat that happens when you get really lean. Uh, and that, you know, coming out of that deficit has a, uh, like, like Eric said, it does allow you to thread the needle physiologically or it being something psychological or it just not really being real. And all of the more critical interpretations of these studies are closer to the truth. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's something I'm really interested to see because right now the data on the whole is all neutral to positive. And can I jump on that and just add one additional thing? Um, so I have seen people talking about this. I know within the Campbell study itself, they did not find significant differences between groups when it comes to uh, training volume. But uh, I, I have seen people say like there's there's no theoretical rationale by which uh, short-term refeed would facilitate better training quality because, you know, resistance training performance and glycogen are fully divorced and unrelated to each other. And that has become my new thing that I talk about everywhere I go. <laughs> um, I've been talking about it for some time and we finally got a study that, that kind of looked at it directly, but you've probably heard people say that a high volume resistance training session only depletes glycogen by 25, 30, maybe 40%. So you've always got at least 60% just kind of hanging out left in the tank, ready to get burned before you start having decrements in performance. Um, there's been a lot of really important research happening, very nuanced research over the last 15 years indicating that muscle glycogen is not a gas tank that we deplete down to zero and then it just shuts down and we can't produce force anymore. Glycogen is compartmentalized into very specific storage areas within the muscle. And what we find is that even only, you know, a 
30, 40% reduction in total muscle glycogen, you know, most people hear that and they say, well, great, you can do two more rounds of that. You got 60% left. Well, that degree of total reduction in, uh, in muscle glycogen is sufficient to meaningfully deplete glycogen uh, near the sarcoplasmic reticulum in type 2 muscle fibers. It's a specific storage area of glycogen, and that particular storage area is critical because it allows the sarcoplasmic reticula to continue releasing and re-sequestering calcium to continue produ producing force uh, at, at a satisfactory rate to continue high-level resistance training performance. So um, that's just one thing I want to throw out there. A lot of people have completely put glycogen off the table as a potential helpful benefit in terms of, uh, you know, enhancing training volume in the workouts, uh, following a refeed. And I would not so quickly discount it, uh, depending on the individual's, you know, th the size of their deficit, how lean they are, their resistance training program. There are many factors that determine whether or not glycogen could be a performance limiting factor. But I think a lot of people about five or six years ago just completely took glycogen out of the equation. And uh, I, I think that was done prematurely. And uh, even partial glycogen depletion can have a notable impact on resistance training performance. I would also mention just because we, we had this recent discussion in our mass peer review that uh, it's also possible that even if mechanistically there is sufficient glycogen available for you to perform, there is a, some point of glycogen depletion where it does seem to, to trigger central fatigue, as we've seen that glycogen-depleted muscles uh, can perform better after a carbohydrate mouth rinse, where you simply expose the oral sensing mechanisms to carbohydrate and then you spit it out, and then you would perform better uh, than, than if you were still uh, glycogen-depleted if you were doing higher volume training. So yeah, there's, there's signals up and down the chain, and I, I just want to echo that. And I would also add one thing. If you want to completely uh, discount the possibility of a, of a mechanistic link between refeeding and anything, all you have to do, it's a simple process, see everything that has to do with leptin in the hypothalamus, go downstream and rule out all those things, and you're good to go. Um, and so you can report back in 25 years and let me know if you found anything. Because uh, the, the leptin's impact on the, uh, the hypothalamus, uh, the number of hormone cascades that all lead up to the hypothalamus, the hypothalamus and its impact on our sensing of energy availability, and then all the related factors, including energy intake and expenditure. The hypothalamus, I mean, it's a hypothalamus world. We're just living in it. It, it just controls everything. <laughs> so I, I'm being facetious, but I mean... There are many potential mechanisms that are on the table, but but I want to be clear. That doesn't mean I'm sitting here and saying, because you haven't disproven every possibility, I'm clinging to the assertion that refeeds definitely fix everything. That's not a good way to view it because you could always say, hey, I've got a hot take that's not fully proven yet. Prove me wrong. And if you can't prove me wrong, I'm right. That, that's not a good way to go about doing things, but, but there, it would be incorrect to assert that there is just no opening there for a potential mechanism. Abel, can I, can I steal man you real quick? Oh yeah, please do. <laughs> am I, am I correct in hearing that you're basically saying, or, or, or what your, what your, your general thinking is like, sure, all the potential benefits of bringing calories up might be there. However, why would we assume they're not offset? by you having them lower earlier to their just justify a similar, uh, you know, total energy deficit by the end of it, like was observed in like, for example, the Campbell study, where they were at a 35% deficit 
uh, for five days and then at maintenance versus a 25% deficit of seven days. Is, is that an accurate representation of your your primary skepticism? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and one thing I would add to that is like either that, like how much of that is just offset by having to go lower in calories earlier in the week and or how much of that is offset by just having a longer diet if you don't go lower in calories and then maybe just how transient all of these increases are. So yeah, maybe your glycogen levels are higher. You can train more productively, but you know maybe that will last for a couple of days, but then you're back at square one. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. And the same thing could go for leptin. So yeah, it increases, but then it goes back as you dip back into that energy deficit. So, but yeah, your steel manning was was great. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, and I mean that that's that's why it's so critical. Like like for Helms and I, I feel like uh, you know throughout the discussion here, we've kept saying like. Dude, if if you just disagree and say like honestly, I'm not convinced yet. I've got zero problems with that interpretation. You know, I, I think that's a very fair thing to say, and you can say yes, I see those potential purported mechanistic relationships, but I believe they'd be offset by the other, you know, four or five days throughout the week. I mean, as I said previously, there is definitely enough wiggle room based on the the pretty sparse data available where where you could work your way to a variety of different defensible conclusions. So I would never fault somebody for saying I don't think that the uh the benefits outweigh the costs for my situation because I'll remind you that's the decision I made for me. <laughs> you know, I basically said, yeah, I, I think there is some potential for benefit here, but I know myself weighing the potential for physiological pros versus the certainty of psychological cons. It ain't for me, but I do think it's a viable tool to kind of keep in your pocket. If you're a coach and you work with a variety of different personality types, a variety of different people with different goals, I do think when you start getting into the more intensive weight reduction uh, scenarios where there's either a large amount of total weight loss occurring or somebody's getting absolutely shredded, I do think there is a time where it does make sense to say, okay, now we have a defensible reason to introduce a little more complication to the to the plan because there's some potential for benefit here. Um, but yes, yeah, so, I mean, it's like I said, it's completely contextual. And uh, I, I don't think Helms or I would, would, would say, you know, oh, refeeds and diet breaks. Once you try it, you never look back because it changes your life. I mean, it ain't that big of an effect, but a lot of times people come to me and say, okay, you know, I'm trying to get shredded again. I'm I'm a physique athlete. Every time I do it, it gets rough. And like, yeah, it's going to, is there anything I can do to give me even a, a possibility that this is going to go a little bit better, a little bit more palatable, a little bit more enjoyable. And so is there enough wiggle room within the, the data? Can you interpret it in a way that basically says, there, there might be some potential for benefit here. And here are the pros, here are the cons. I do think there are scenarios where it makes sense to say, hey, we've got a problem and this is a potential solution. Um, but I, I don't think it's for everybody. And I don't, think, uh, I don't think we have enough evidence yet to conclusively say, you definitely got to do it or you definitely shouldn't. But I'll also mention, um, you know, it's, it's worth noting that the practice does not seem to have any really notable downsides aside from just like, Hey, I'd rather be done earlier. When we look at a variety of different studies with nonlinear approaches, we do not see 
a series of studies in which the diet breaker refeed group have worse outcomes. It's some of them where they seem to do better and somewhere it just doesn't seem to matter. And so I, I think when, when you look at the potential for, for uh, benefit and then the potential risks involved, you have to consider, well, what's the likelihood of this totally backfiring physiologically? I'd say physiologically minimal. Psychologically, again, it's just about knowing who you are or who, who your client is and kind of weighing the pros and cons from there. Uh, so it, it's highly contextually based. And, you know, anyone who tells you that the science is fully, fully leaning uh, one way or the other, I think is maybe over exaggerating the certainty of the evidence. Um, so yeah, the, the, the important thing to keep in mind, like I said, it's, it's not like there's this vast amount of evidence saying, oh, these are clearly useless uh, within the context that Helms and I generally implement them. Uh, you know, if, if, if I ever did have a theory that was just completely contradictory to, to all the evidence available, even if it wasn't perfectly suited to answer the question, you'd, then you'd have to say, there's just, there's just no potential benefit and some cost here. But I think refeeds and diet breaks based on the literature available, like Helm said, like you have to be a little comfortable with the uncertainty, whichever route you take, whichever conclusion you make. Um, cause, cause I just don't think, I don't think we have the entire, uh, cause and effect relationship really mapped out yet. Gotcha. Awesome. Abel, if, if I may, yeah. and I, I'll promise to keep this short because I think Eric covered a lot of ground there. Um, the reason why I wanted to clarify and, and steel man you is because I think, I think that's a very, you know, valid consideration that whatever you gain, you lose. If you'd look at a, a time matched scenario, and if you look at an untime matched scenario, then it takes longer. Um, and at least from goal completion till, uh, you know, from goal start to goal completion. And you're not thinking about, you know, the time off, if that's not the, the way most humans frame their goals, then how long does it take me to accomplish it? I want to get shredded. I want to get a six pack. It takes me six months or four months. I'll take four months if I don't have uh, convincing proof that this will be a better outcome. Um, you know, interesting though, in, in practice, when I work with, with bodybuilders, I have also had that same concern. So I look at the way of trying to game the system and quote unquote gaming the system is that I don't try to institute these really low days to justify higher calorie days. I look at it as a continuum is that when we start off and you're experiencing less uh, symptoms of low energy availability, your body fat percentage is higher, you have less diet fatigue, you're psychologically and physiologically robust, uh, I'm attempting to have a slightly higher rate of weight loss. So the conceptual model that I've presented a lot of times in these presentations is we might start somewhere along the range of losing 1% of body weight per week and then finish closer about 0.5% of body weight per week. So your deficit is decreasing as your ability to handle the deficit is also decreasing to try to mitigate some of these experiences. And the way that I decrease the deficit is typically by increasing the number of days that are refeeds or the frequency of diet breaks so that there is no really low days that are coming from that process. And that is my attempt in comparison to just simply having a more linear but more modest uh, but faster overall approach uh, of just kind of the straight shot towards, towards the eventual uh, outcome. Uh, because I am cognizant of the potential uh, way of looking at it where you've got these 1,200 calorie days just so you can have uh, these other calorie days that are that are in the high 2,000s. I don't think that makes sense, and you probably don't want to have 
like super, super low calorie days. And that is something to be aware of and just a clarification uh, that I wanted to make. And I've always thought that you, you know, there is some uh, threading the needle that could be done where you get a benefit, but it's not a direct one-to-one where if we matched for time and matched for energy expenditure, wouldn't offset it. So I was actually relatively pleasantly surprised when I looked at the Campbell study uh, and I was like, oh, this is, this is, this is a pretty good outcome as there were some, you know, neutral to positive things favoring the refeed group, even though they match for energy expenditure and match for time. Right. Um, so Helms, actually, I wanted to ask you this specifically on this call. So I listened to your podcast that you did with Menno, uh, with Danny Lennon. And there you mentioned, I believe that you did five days at 1200 calories and then two days at 2500. So that sounds pretty brutal. <laughs> and uh, so if I did the math right, your average calories would be somewhere around 1,500. So what do you think would have happened in your case if you ate at 1,500 every single day as opposed to doing this alternating approach? Or what do you think you gained from it? You know, actually at that point, I think I was going on low days until Berto was like he's had enough and we had refeeds until I looked better. Um, there may have been, you know, a five, five and two setup, but I, I didn't have, especially in that kind of period, I was on really, really low calories. I didn't have an intentional uh, five and two setup. Um, and sometimes when I did, it was based on like when I had meetings or when I had to do something and then trying to get enough of a deficit on the days where I didn't. And then trying to adapt around my uh, needing to be a human interacting with other humans schedule. Um, and <laughs> Helms, I'm sorry, I got to interrupt. I remember we were talking about this in London and you had mentioned that you were like carb loading to like go to a meeting as yes. if it was like a, <laughs> an athletic event. You're like, oh man, I've got to actually talk to somebody on Thursday. So how are we going to adjust the plan? <laughs> yeah. So th actually this is a really an important thing, Abel, is that, um, I made a decision that Alberto, I had to talk him into it. Uh, was that so I had a sh I'd chosen April and then I had this multi-month gap before I then competed in in July so I had a uh, show early earlier mid-April I can't remember which I think it was early ish so I basically had uh, all of May and all of June and a few weeks in April to get from good condition to shredded more than enough time um, however I was perceiving the diet as really shitty kind of regardless and making it more shitty was easier for a shorter period than extending that. So we went more aggressive than Berto would have liked. He would have preferred me just to lose at a steady rate and then start eating up, you know, after my July shows to then do my, my final shows in August or to see if I get my pro card or whatever the game plan w would have been. But instead I was like, hey, let's just crush the shit out of me in May where I don't have any travel, you know, before the UEBC where I did have travel. And that is where I actually started eating up. And that was one of those decisions where Berta was like, I really don't think it's a good idea while you're, you know, 7% body fat to go on 1200 calories as an 80 kilo competitor. And I said, I recognize that, but I'm hopeful that we'll make it up, you know, eating up on the back end and regaining whatever I've lost. Um, and uh, I think that was one of those concessions I made that was pretty individual kind of talking about the context of working with someone that Berto acquiesced to. <laughs> and it resulted in, you know, me pushing low days basically whenever I could, and then necessarily bringing them up uh, to to recover from that process and then do life and things like that and, uh, you know, stay human. So I think that was a physiologically suboptimal choice at that time to accomplish what felt overall easier. And I was glad I did in retrospect, because I did have 
multiple months of, of basically eating at maintenance in my in the, in the final stage and looking better uh, over time. Um, but I don't think, uh, but like I said, I, I wouldn't have, I've never had someone go, you know what, we need to have these 2,500 calorie refeeds and to get the deficit, we've got to go to 1,200 calories on your low days. More commonly, what I'll do is I'll go, we need to push hard. We have a digging phase and we're going to finish the digging phase up with some refeeds to restore glycogen, sanity, and motivation. And then we're going to go back after the digging phase to something a little more manageable. And that's almost like periodized with life uh, motivation, uh, their schedule, and, and what they can handle. And it's a kind of a process of discussion. And if I could uh, kind of present the hypothetical scenario, you asked Helms like, well, what would have happened if you just did a more consistent route? Well, that would have been my last prep. And it was pretty fine and pretty okay. Uh, you know, so I guess for me, the thing that I think about is, well, what would have happened if I did the other route? What if I did have some, uh, some weekly refeeds, uh, you know, maybe two days in a row, 48 hour refeed period. And I would think, um, might've had a few better training sessions. Um, might've, uh, you know, I caught the metabolic adaptation and I caught it bad that prep, but I mean, maybe it would have been a little bit less severe, but at the end of the day, you know, I mean, Helms, it, it's going to happen, right? I mean, you're getting, you know, 5% body fat that that's where you're headed. So I think I probably could have had a slightly less pronounced physiological kind of, <laughs> you know, maybe it wouldn't have been quite as brutal. In, in terms of the, you know, the endocrine effects and things like that, but it was going to be bad either way. And so for me, I was like, I understand that there might be some meat on the bone here. There might be some potential benefit physiologically from maybe having a couple refeed days there. But to me, the psychological cons did not outweigh the potential for physiological pros. And, uh, and yeah, so it, it, it I, I can answer the question for Helms. What would have happened if you just did it straight through? would have been fine um it would have been totally fine and that's okay yeah and it's actually insightful because you guys are pretty similar from what you've told me that you both have a pretty thrifty metabolism so you tend to adapt quite a bit um I actually tracks when we talked last i actually told you um when we were talking about metabolic adaptation that i tr when i listened to eric helms's uh, podcast i got so inspired by these super low days and then having some high days that i actually tried it and i did like four days at 1300 calories, boy, you should have seen me by the end of those four days. <laughs> it was quite amusing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one thing to look at a spreadsheet and say, huh, 1400 calories. Very interesting. But then when you actually start preparing the meals, you're like, oh my God, there's nothing here. <laughs> like it, it is a really <laughs> jarring experience. Yeah. And I, I do have a pretty thrifty metabolism and that's something I know. And you know, to me, I'm like, okay, I, I, I do believe that these refeeds and diet breaks might have some utility at certain points along the way. But at the end of the day, we're, we're talking about attenuating or mitigating. We're not talking about truly preventing or offsetting. And so for me, because of my kind of psychological makeup, I kind of ex like when I'm prepping, I don't try to avoid hunger. I don't try to make it worse, but I'm like, hey, I'm going to get hungry. That's that's prep. And the same thing kind of goes to some extent with metabolic adaptation. I'm like, listen, thyroid hormone's going to be low. I'm going to feel cold. Pack an extra sweatshirt. Uh, my neat is going to go down subconsciously. Plan for a walk midday. You know, there, there are, there's, you kind of have to accept which battles you're going to fight. 
Yeah. Yep. Um, wanted to say something, Helms? Yeah, I, um, I, I am very comfortable noticing that it is all possible that everything I've observed over my off-season mini-cut experiences and um, my preps with and without refeeds is all a product of having more linear scale weight changes and having times where my physique looks good again after refeeds to keep me psychologically calm in the process of something that is almost inherently psychologically stressful. Uh, not having to wonder whether or not I'm actually losing fat because I have water retention, making unnecessary cuts, uh, and then not wondering if I'm actually losing muscle from having these refeeds and actually having some points in the diet where I'm not devastatingly flat and going, oh, I guess I do still lift. And that could be 90% of it. And I would love to know that because then we might make slightly different structural changes. Um, we might, I think, I think it's really, I'm really excited to be able to answer your question in the future, uh, Abel, as to what the mechanisms are, if this is a thing, um, so that then we can go, okay, well, if it's not impacting X, Y, or Z, but it is impacting, you know, A, B, and C, then maybe we should structure our refeeds to maximize A, B, and C, rather than as they are now, trying to do it for our assumptions about, you know, leptin or, 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 or glycogen or something like that. So I think that would be a, um, uh, a really positive outcome. And, and that is the one weakness of applied studies, uh, which I would categorize uh, Byrne and, and Campbell primarily as, is that the, the principal thing they're doing is replicating something that has been in practice or that could be done in practice, seeing what happens and saying protocol A uh, had better outcomes on the key variables than protocol B. It wasn't an intensive investigation of the potential mechanisms behind it. And I think that will be important work to be done in the future. Awesome. Um, yeah, gentlemen, so we are almost coming up at two hours, so probably we should wrap up. But like one final thing I will just say, uh, and I'm just curious if you agree with me. So this is more so on the diet breaks front, but I think it could be relatively, um, I wouldn't say easy, but maybe productive to do a study where one group diets straight through at a given deficit. Another group is doing diet breaks. And then there is a third group, which is just dieting slower. So maybe the you know, the control group is doing a 20% deficit and the slow dieting group does a 10% deficit. So basically the deficit over time is equated for. So we see if the diet breaks are only beneficial because um, the overall deficit is lowered or there is some other mechanism. So I think that could be a useful thing and it would answer some questions which were not answered thus far. Uh, would you guys agree with that? Um, Trex, you can go first. <laughs> I would absolutely, yeah, I would absolutely agree. That would be fantastic. And and much like Helm said, I, I'm just interested in uh, getting more evidence, more data. And like, you know, my Instagram handle isn't like at the refeed king or like, <laughs> you know, like you, you can't buy the Eric Trexler diet break book for $29.99. Like I've, I've got, I'm not attached to it. And, you know, the, the only time I've... I'll go on podcasts and say, yeah, there might be something here. I've got a, a free article I wrote where I say, eh, these interactions weren't significant, but kind of interesting. But yeah, I mean, like Helms and I are, I, I think, both in a position where, like, we have no reason to fiercely defend <laughs> whether or not there's some utility here. It's just like, ah, oh, there's some physiological rationale. There's some mixed data. There's some anecdote, uh, you know, fill in the gaps. If you, if you like them, great. If not, no big deal. But I agree. I think that would be a really fantastic study design and um, hopefully 
there are a great deal of researchers listening and somebody will go do it. I would agree, Abel. I think that would be great research to do. And, and to give some, uh, some interesting little tidbits of hope to those interested in this area of research, I know uh, Jackson Pios is doing some analyses on uh, the body fat levels of individuals doing this stuff to see if there's potential relationships there. And I think I heard Menno say on the recent Revive Stronger that he's collaborating on a, uh, a, a diet break study as well. So this is certainly not a um, uh, like a, a dead area of research or anything like that. There are some people who are interested in and exploring it. So I'm, 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 I'm excited to see what's going on in the future. Helms, I'm pretty certain that the, the study that uh, Menno referred to, I'm pretty sure I did the stats for it, unless there's another study floating around out there. He did say it was with Campbell. So I think you, you probably did. I know you, I know you do a lot of data collaboration with Dr. Campbell. Yeah. And if you look at the most recent uh, uh, abstracts from the JISSN, they published their big annual abstract thing from the conference. Uh, some of that data was presented at that conference. So there are some abstracts out there with some information, but unless we have another two hours, I don't know if we can dive into that. Well, I'm going to have to, well, I want to check that out. So once we get off, send it to me. Okay. Thank you. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, well, gentlemen, this was an incredibly productive discussion and very insightful and very enjoyable from my end. So thank you so much, both of you for doing this. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. I guess the only thing left is just you guys uh, plugging whatever you'd like to plug uh, for the listeners. Um, it sounded a bit funny, anyway. Uh, so Abel, I just want to plug you and say uh, first, I'm gonna let that that sentence just hang in the air for a second, <laughs> and then I'm gonna say I think you just did a great job with this, and I really respect uh, the intentional effort to engage with people who came to a different conclusion and to challenge your own biases. I know in my personal life, when I'm courageous enough to do that, uh, it has only made me better. And I think that is something that, uh, I, you know, on, on a meta level from science, the process of exposing yourself to alternative conclusions, disconfirming your hypotheses, uh, engaging with contrary data, checking your biases and updating your beliefs is philosophically the most important piece, not just hey, I want to find the, the best way to, to get shredded um, because you can't do that unless you do the former thing or you'll be led down rabbit holes and, and red herring. So just appreciate you, ha you having us on and for this discussion. Um, and, you know, if people want to find me, it's always 3D Muscle Journey. Yeah, and, uh, you know, if, if people want to find me, Instagram is at Trexler Fitness. Um, I want to echo what Helm said. I, I really appreciate the invitation. Um, a lot of people you know, kind of pick their route, whether they believe in a particular divisive topic or, or not, and just kind of, you know, talk to the people who agree with them. So uh, I like that you said, hey, come talk me out of what I think. And we probably didn't, and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I really appreciate uh, you having us on. And uh, aside from my Instagram, if you want to hear more of my thoughts on the topic, I did just release a 12-week course on how to do diet breaks. It's only 2000 US dollars. We actually collaborated on that. Um, it's, it's really great. It's, uh, I actually have never seen anyone lose fat successfully without using this diet break course. And those who have, uh, it wasn't fat. It was all muscle. So anyway, just check out that course. Uh, low, low price. of. Uh, did we want to <laughs> drop it down to 1999 for the New Year Trex? Oh, uh, we can't. We yeah, can't. Yeah, it's a I, steal. You're right, you're right. Didn't I collaborate on that as well? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For sure. Um, but no, seriously, thanks for having us. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get a lot more data and we can come back and, and discuss more. 
Ooh, folks, that was a long episode, but it was good, wasn't it? Uh, so actually, I'm going to put this episode into a playlist which contains two or three other episodes which I've done with people like Lyle McDonald or Menno Henselmans, some of my personal favorite people in the fitness industry. I also had my own little personal debate on this with my friend Dave McConey, so you might want to check that out as well. And now we have this other addition to that great playlist. So you might want to check that out. If you go to my channel, you will see it and you will see some other playlist as well like the volume month Oof, what a month that was we were talking about training volume with all the best experts in the world holy shit and it's free oh god damn it i should be replacing santa claus or something but anyway i hope you like this episode so again if you're new here subscribe but come on you did it already didn't you i'm sure you did it <laughs> who wouldn't do it jesus christ anyway but if you didn't do it do it um Okay, whatever. So thank you for tuning in so far and uh, hope we will see each other in future episodes again.